Welcome to the latest episode of The Shamrock. I'm Pete Sampson. I'll be joined in a second by Matt Fortuna. Today's episode, we have a very special guest, the first Hall of Fame guest in the history of our podcast, Muffet McGraw, now former Notre Dame women's basketball coach. We talked a lot about not only her tenure here, but as football has marked time through her 33 years, um, some insight into Brian Kelly, um, a little bit of talk about Clark Lee, Notre Dame's defensive coordinator, uh, and some talk about Notre Dame in general in terms of not only where, where she would like to see the university go, uh, how she wants to stay involved with it, but just sort of how it's changed and what makes it unique, uh, distinct from some other universities and college athletics today. After that interview, uh, Matt will and I will talk a little bit about the NFL draft. Notre Dame had six picks over the weekend, all the way from the second round down to the sixth round. Uh, so we'll chat about that and sort of how Notre Dame fits into the bigger picture of college athletics. If you haven't seen Matt's take on Ohio State's draft success as it relates to Urban Meyer, perhaps not uh, fulfilling all the potential there, you might want to check that out on theathletic.com. But we will get into the NFL Draft Talk after our Hall of Fame conversation with Muffet McGraw. Pleased to be joined today on the Shamrock, 33-year Notre Dame head coach, nine-time Final Four, two-time national champions, Hall of Fame, Muffet McGraw, um, one, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's, I know it's been a kind of wild last couple of weeks. Oh, I, I guess just in terms of how is, how has it gone processing being former Notre Dame head coach Muffet McGraw? <laughs> I haven't got used to it yet. In every interview I've been on, <laughs> they, they always say, we're talking with Notre Dame basketball coach Muffet McGraw. No, we're not. It's former Notre Dame <laughs> coach. Let me do that again. Um, you know, I, I, I'm enjoying myself right now and looking forward to some new challenges. What have the last, it's been almost a week now, it's been six days. What have the last six days been like? And I, I've got to ask, have you got any job offers in or, in or outside of basketball in the six days since you retired? <laughs> I've gotten a few, few things that are coming down, but you know, it's so interesting. These days, days are, I can't even keep track of what day it is. Has it already been six days? I feel like it was just the other day. <laughs> So um, everything it kind of moves slowly, and it's everything's at the same the same time. But I, I have talked to a couple of people, um, maybe writing a book. Um, I'm looking to stay on at Notre Dame and do some things there with Jack Swarbrick. I have a lot of respect for him and his vision in athletics, and I would like to see a little different side of it. But I'm not ready for nine to five, so I'm uh, I'm going to be a special projects person. I'm hoping. I was curious, I mean, your time at Notre Dame, we, I think a lot of people in the Notre Dame community, we sort of mark time around Notre Dame based on football. And you think back, like when you were hired, Lou Holtz was five and six and Notre Dame's last Heisman Trophy winner was Johnny Hewitt. How much has this place changed at, at large? But also, I, I think the emphasis on, on women's sports, um, you know, is so much in the last 20 years. How How has this place changed in a way that, it sounds like you're still adamant to, to be a part of it and continue to change it further. Well, I think we've come a long way since I started way back. Uh, it almost seemed as if Title IX hadn't hit Notre Dame yet. And it was the late 80s when I came on. But what a great time to be a football fan. Lou Holtz was such an amazing role model. And as a coach, and I got to talk to him, I'd see him, of course, right down the hall. So, you know, I could stop in and get some advice from him. Tim Brown won the Heisman Trophy in my second year. We didn't lose a home football game for my first four years. So, I mean, Matt and I were in heaven every every week enjoying that. But eventually in recruiting, people would talk about 
the negative side was always, well, you're a football school. And we fought against that quite a lot until we finally had some success and went to our first Final Four in 97. And then we thought, is it time we can talk about women's basketball? And then having the continued success um, with, with the, all the women's sports here, really women's soccer had won a national championship. So there were so many great things going on. And I just love how all of the coaches have such a great camaraderie and we support each other and we do whatever we can for each other. One of the things that, that really struck me uh, during your uh, Zoom press conference last week w was how you talked about uh, thinking about retiring last year, but not wanting to leave your successor in a hole with so much departing talent off the national uh, finalist and with so many questions going into the season. I thought that was a, a graceful thing to do that we don't always see in sports or really in life anymore. Uh, that being said, how difficult was this past year for you being how different it was uh, results-wise from everything else and, and how confident and, and, I guess, comforted are you by the fact that you just signed the best recruiting class in school history. Uh, Neil Ivy, you know everything you need to know about her and that you know that she knows this place inside and out. Can, can you can I take me through the emotions of the ups and downs of this past year? Well, Matt, there were plenty plenty of ups and downs, more, more downs, I guess. And there were definitely times when I would – kind of think to myself, why didn't I leave last year? Uh, but I knew I knew I didn't want to. I, I wasn't quite ready. You know how people talk about when are you going to retire? How do you know? And I wasn't 100% sure. And I looked at losing 10,000 points, five WNBA players. And I said, this is still my program. These are still my kids. I recruited them here. I don't want to leave them right now because it looks like everyone's deserting them. So I really felt strongly that I wanted to stay and kind of rebuild it, look and see what was happening. We had a great recruiting class, as you mentioned. So excited about the class coming in. And just to have uh, 12 bodies, you know, we, we've gone so many years where we ended the year and we had six or seven. And this year, our, our first sub off the bench was a walk-on. So we, we just have really um, kind of struggled with the numbers. So it, it's, it's exciting to see we're back. We're ranked in the top 25 preseason poll, which is Kind of surprising, I think, when you look at the season we had last year. But we uh, we have some talent, so I'm expecting a huge turnaround this year. I wanted to follow up on that, that camaraderie concept with with other coaches at Notre Dame. Um, you know, a, a coach from football that I've sort of gotten to know is Clark Lee, their defensive coordinator, and I sort of understand he's sort of checked out some of your practices. I don't know if you spent much yep. time talking to mm -hmm. him, but he seems like kind of a curious mind who's trying to evolve. So I want to ask you sort of about your conversations with him, but also as a coach who, who has sort of seen everything, how do you keep learning? How do you keep evolving as a head coach where, you know, not having all the answers is, is a feature because it, it allows you to continue to grow. I'm, I'm curious about those two concepts, Clark Lee, but also sort of how do you keep learning as a coach who's, who's seen sort of everything? Well, thanks, Pete. I think the most important thing is that curious mind, as you mentioned, which Jack Swerwick always talks about. And also just the, I want to grow as a coach. I want to see how other people work. If I'm thinking about doing something new, I want to see how the experts are doing it. Last year, we went out to the Boston Celtics, talked to Brad Stevens, spent some time, watched film with him. I was in heaven. You know, we, we just, it's like Christmas day when I get to do that. We went up to Michigan State, talked to Tom Izzo. We've been to the Bulls, uh, the the fever, so many different places. And I think just, I, I love that. I mean, I think that's probably my favorite part of coaching is just sharing ideas and talking about what we can do. Uh, and I love to do it on campus. Clark has come over. We spent a lot of time together just talking about coaching philosophies and this generation 
How do things work? Um, what can we learn from each other? He came by practice a couple of times. Um, the, the female coaches at Notre Dame, of which there aren't enough of us, there's only five of us. So we tend to gather uh, for a lunch, try to get together every month and talk about things. Uh, there's a chat going on right now with all of our coaches. Now that we're in this kind of limbo period, you know, every Tuesday at noon, uh, there's all the coaches just get on a chat and talk about whatever, you know, share book ideas. What are you doing with your team right now? Uh, when this hit, the first call I made was Brian Kelly. I wanted to see what are you doing? Uh, you know, how are you going to work this with your team? How do you, you know, I went, then I went and talked to his strength coach, um, you know, talked to Ron Palace, talked to the hockey, talked to men's basketball, just to see how everybody is handling this and what can I learn from them? I don't think it was a, a huge state secret that whenever this time did come, Neil Ivey would be candidate one, two, and three, I think, to, to replace you. I think we all kind of expected that announcement uh, after you made your retirement uh, announcement. But how have you talked to her much in the week since this became official? And you're still going to be around. You're still going to be in the South Bend community. How are you? I guess this is a question you won't have an answer to until you actually go through it. But how are you going to try to balance uh not wanting to uh, overstep any boundaries, not trying to overshadow her. And uh, I mean, are you planning on going to games next year as a fan? How, how are you going to process all of that um, <laughs> when the season tips off? You know, I'm, I'm a little worried about that actually. I, Cause my first thought was I want to be in the stands every game cheering my team on and, you know, maybe wearing a green t-shirt to support the fan base. But I also want to step back and give them room. I'm not going to be ever, well, I'll never be at practice. Uh, I'm not going to be looking over anyone's shoulder. I'm not going to be texting and saying, why didn't you go to the 2-3 zone? Uh, you, you should have played this one instead of that one. Um, you know, I'm definitely stepping back and letting Neil take the reins. But we are, we, we will meet and uh, I will hope to continue to mentor her. Uh, we've talked a lot, <laughs> a lot in the last couple of weeks. And uh, I'm excited for her to just, just make her own mark, leave her stamp on the program. I think the, uh, obviously recruiting already going well. Uh, we had been looking at those two in particular for some time now. Uh, they visited last summer, had a great time on campus, loved Notre Dame. And so I was just so happy that with the transition, it, it was somebody they knew because they got to meet her last year when they were on their visit. So everything seems to be a, a pretty smooth transition. I, I love the way Jack kind of set the whole thing up to leave the anxiety uh, at the lowest possible point for the team. You'd mentioned sort of, you know, going and whether it be the fever or the Celtics, you know, what, what do you think Niall, Niall got out of her, you know, an abridged year in the NBA, but um, you know, some time around a, a different style, different uh, level of basketball. Well, she learned a ton. She would call, you know, every now and then say, Oh, I got this great drill. You got to try. Oh, Here's this great quick hitter. Oh, you might use this for a late game situation. Here's how we're guarding the pick and roll right now. I mean, she was just a sponge. And for the NBA, I mean, they have like nine coaches. I think she learned something from every single one of them, you know, and plus got to see how the other team was operating. So I thought it was like a year of professional development. And, and I think the distance from our team this year worked out perfectly because as we struggled, she doesn't come in with any sort of um, negative feelings about anything that happened last year so the team gets a fresh start and she gets to see it with fresh eyes i spoke to jack swarbrick the, the day your retirement became official and uh he said that you really i think your eyes were open maybe a little bit to just how wide your voice can spread uh, after that 2019 final four press conference um that, that went i don't want to say viral and cheapen it but but went to places beyond the basketball community um did you learn anything about yourself and the power you have 
through that moment? And did you, was that pre-planned, calculated? How did that kind of take on a life of its own, if you will? You know, a lot of people asked me if I had planned on saying that. And, and I said, if I had planned on saying that, I probably would have worn lipstick and combed my hair <laughs> because I was, uh, you know, just coming off the practice floor. It, uh, it was something that needed to be said. And apparently across the country, women in every industry were waiting for somebody to say something. And, you know, everybody has piggybacked on it. We've had a lot of great things. It started with the Me Too movement. Time's up. There's so many movements going on with women. Um, especially the way we're resisting and marching and letting our voice be heard. And I just, I want to be someone that has a voice. When Pat Summit passed away, we lost a huge voice in women's basketball. And I wanted to do something. I didn't know. Honestly, I was not sure that people would listen. And I, I really was shocked, actually, at how much um, that went around the country and how many people talked about it. So now I feel like I need to step up and continue to speak. This might be a strange question, but like after you sort of see the reaction to that, are you thinking about, well, I should, I should, I can, or I should do more than coach. I mean, coaching is, is such a, a legacy. You, you're teaching so many people, um, you know, players, assistants, you know, I think people in the community here in Notre Dame, but after that message gets out, do you, do you sort of think even bigger than that? I absolutely do. And that was something that, one of the things that kind of led me, I think, into retirement at this time, because I just kept looking at what else is out there. And there's so many things that I think I can do. Um, you know, people have asked me if I want to go into politics. And, you know, that's that's a way to get things done. I don't think that's an avenue that I want to pursue. There's there's so many um, people that enter and try to, try to change things. And, and it's a little bit of a slow process. But I think I want to do something on a national stage if I can help women in any way. And I'm hoping that I can have a platform. And that's that's what I'm not sure of right now is where my platform will come from. Over the years, Condoleezza Rice had become a friend of the program. I know she had visited you guys at, at practice during the NCAA tournament when I shadowed you in 2019. Uh, have you heard from her, from anyone else from that world uh, in the week since you retired? Yeah, I heard from Condoleezza. Uh, sent me a nice a nice note, and uh, we're hoping to get together for some golf, especially next time she's in town or if we head out to California. Um, so there's a few people. Um, Peter King is a congressman from New York. Uh, the governor of Indiana called. Um, so there's been some kind of some really nice things that are happening. And I'm curious, uh, in terms of you know the what's next around Notre Dame when the special products is it what. What's sort of like your your first interest there? Um, you know, if, if you had a list of, hey, here are three things I'd really like to sit down and talk to Jack Swarbrick about and move forward in, what really jumps to the forefront there? Well, I think leadership for me, leadership for women, more opportunities for women. When I look at Notre Dame, I am elated that this year we finally hired a female in the triumvirate of leaders at Notre Dame. We've had three white men for 250 years or however long we've been around. And so to hire a female provost, mm -hmm. uh, we have a female director of admissions, I think three female deans, um, our legal counsel is a woman. It's, it's great to see. Uh, I feel like my work is done. We've gotten some women in charge, uh, but can I do more? Um, you know, what, what about the athletic department? We need more female coaches and we're starting a sports management program in the business school. Can I get involved in teaching something about leadership on that side? 
if we went down the list of every coach in every sport throughout your 33 years at Notre Dame, it would probably number in the thousands. So uh, I'll try to keep this as short as possible. Uh, who were some of your favorites to work with through other sports uh, across your three plus decades at Notre Dame? Well, I, I've loved the association with the other women coaches on campus. Um, Deanna Gump, Chris Halfpenny, Allison Silverat. They're, they're, we've had some great female coaches, Susan Holt and Gump. We, we just, we haven't had enough of them. But I tell you, back, uh, really, Lou Holtz was such a great inspiration for me and somebody that I could always talk to about pretty much anything. Uh, he was terrific. Digger is still around. Uh, he's been helping me for years. And I think that, you know, what he does and how he stays involved in Notre Dame uh, has been tremendous. Uh, Brian Kelly, same thing. I go to his practices and see what he's doing. Uh, I just, you know, the fencing coach, we've had a real, really great relationship, he and I, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's so many people that you can just strike a conversation with and just, you know, you, we don't spend a lot of time chit chatting. We get right to the point, you know, like, how do you pick your captains? What are you doing about this? What, what do you think we should do here? And, uh, you know, I love that. I, I'm curious with, with Brian Kelly, you've seen football chew up and spit out quite a few coaches over the years. Why do you think he's lasted as long as he has and is, is really thriving, um, you know, as he gets into year 11? You know, I think so much of coaching involves your staff and your support staff. It is critical that you have the right people around you. As the head coach, you have the vision, you have the plan of where you want to go and how you're going to get there. But you need people to implement that. You need buy-in from the team. So the recruiting is crucial. It's not about, oh, I got this five-star kid or um, this guy's going to be a blue-chip prospect. It's, it's all about chemistry. It's about the fit at Notre Dame. You want kids that are leaders. You want kids that are going to work hard. I love those kids that aren't quite as highly recruited. Um, they get somebody that, you know, kind of comes in as a three-star, but, boy, he really wanted to be at Notre Dame and play football at Notre Dame. So um, I think he's done a great job recruiting. I think his staff continues to change and evolve. Uh, he's always got good people around him. His strength coach is phenomenal. I think the strength coach changes the culture of your whole program. They, they build toughness and leadership. So – uh, I, I think having that support staff is really the biggest key and, and obviously not taking anything away from Brian and his ability to execute as a head coach. Do you have any shareable stories of Brian Kelly, Lou Holtz, Charlie Weiss, probably not George or Larry, but uh, <laughs> Ty Willingham, Eddie, or Mike Bray for that matter. Um, any shareable stories you'd like to share now that uh, you know they can't really get back at you anymore? <laughs> I'll tell you what, Charlie Weiss was terrific to me. Um, I think I turned... 50 or something happened. He brought a cake into practice um, in front of my whole team, carried it in himself, um, you know, to, to celebrate. It was either my birthday or some big win. Maybe we just had and, uh, and I just got a text from him out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in a while. got a text after my retirement um, offering up some, uh, some funny things uh, that uh, I don't want to share, but um, you know, and Lou Holtz, I mean, I, I, I he's, you know, he's a funny guy and, and he can, he can get right to the point in a hurry, and and he, you know, he helped me along the way in so many ways. Um, really, I think everybody has, has helped me and contributed, but um, not that I have any particular stories about them. I'm curious, uh, as you sort of wrap up here, just like Notre Dame in general, why, what makes it unique and different, and how long does it take to sort of appreciate that and understand that once once you're here? I think Notre Dame is a magical place and it's a place that changes you. You don't come to Notre Dame and think I'm going to change and I'm going to do this and that. 
um, it's a place where you get immersed in the culture and the tradition. And I love the fact that our president and our athletic director are people with integrity because so much in college athletics today, it's, it's, it's just not a, a really healthy environment in a lot of places. And I know at Notre Dame, integrity matters and doing things the right way matters. And how many NCAA rules you can get around or, or try to evade, you're like, that, that matters to us. We're, go- we're going to do things the right way. And I think when you come here, you know that. You're not going to get every kid you want. They're not going to get admitted. You, there are some, some things that you have to understand. But in the end, it's, it's all about the family and the alums coming back. Our alumni network is so big. And that is my, my favorite picture of my entire coaching career was in Columbus in 2018. We won the championship. But afterwards, 40 of our alums come down on the court, get up on stage, and we have a picture with all of them. Um, and that's that's what Notre Dame is all about. It's all about family. I'm not going to ask for your opinion on this because it, it, I think it would probably be awkward for you, but I don't think there's any doubt that sometime in the near future there will be a statue of you on campus in Notre Dame. I mean, it's pretty much tradition for anyone who wins a national championship there. I, I mean, just, just the idea of that, could, could you – process that would you be embarrassed by that what would you like what 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 would that mean for you i would be honored and embarrassed at the <laughs> same time i think <laughs> um it's that's just beyond my comprehension right now i think one of one of the most fun things we ever did here was take the championship trophy around the tailgates before one of the football games and i think that was the most fun we've ever had and i i don't think i appreciated how the alums how much they really they cared about women's basketball and how much um, winning championships means to our fans. And it has been such an amazing journey um, to see something like that happen, I think would be beyond my wildest imagination. Yeah, they're, they're, I'm, I'm with Fortuna here. There has to be a statue at some point soon, right? I, I, I'm curious, like, where will, where will it go? Um, you'll, you'll have to be wearing heels, right? I mean, it's I like, was going to say, part, will there right? be heels? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that'll certainly differentiate it from the other statues. <laughs> yeah, next, to, next to Moose Grouse smoking a cigar. Yeah. You can ask Lou Holtz what he didn't like about what they did when they made his and, and learn from his mistakes. I will. Excellent. Well, Coach McGraw, we really appreciate you uh, taking some time uh, to chat with us about so your time at Notre Dame leadership. I can tell you that uh, I have a couple kids in my house that are crushed that uh, the summer basketball camp has been scheduled. Um, I know. It was something that uh, it was a highlight of last summer for both of my kids. But uh, again, we we really appreciate you taking some time to chat with us, and uh, congratulations on an incredible career, and certainly uh, the exciting stuff that's going to come next. Thanks, Pete. I really enjoyed it. See you, Matt. Thanks, love it. Welcome back to the Shamrock. That was our first Hall of Fame guest, Muffet McGraw. Uh, pretty enlightening interview, both in terms of uh, her career here, uh, what makes Notre Dame a little bit different, some some insight into the football program, Brian Kelly, Clark Lee. Um, Matt, I, I guess before, before we get in the NFL draft, like, what was the most interesting thing you heard from that? Um, how at peace she seems with her decision, especially for someone who has done that job at that high of a level for as long as she did. I mean, every single sport at every single level, 
when someone coaches that long, it seems like it's almost a forced exit because they just don't know when to let go. It's like almost like this addiction that they can't let go of. And we've seen it in football. We've seen it in basketball. And with Muff McGraw, who, you know, you said her resume is we introed her, uh, all those Final Fours, multiple national titles. Uh, she seemed very, very at peace at it. And even in her Zoom press conference last week, she had said this, this period of self-isolation is basically allowed her to learn that she can live without basketball. And uh, I give her credit because that is not an easy thing to do. If it was, I think we'd see a lot more graceful exits and we just haven't really across all sports. I mean, that that was in no way more interesting than Charlie Weiss with the cake coming into practice though. All right, moving on to the NFL draft. Um, I mean, there were, I think a a few takeaways from the draft. You maybe, I, I teased this in our intro. You wrote a story about Ohio state as a, um, Underachieving might be the wrong word, but I'm not sure what else to say uh, with Urban Meyer as it relates to the NFL draft and the fact that they don't necessarily have a whole lot of hardware to show for it. I watched the draft uh, beyond sort of seeing, you know, will Komet sneak into the first round? Where does Claypool go? The most interesting thing to me was sort of um, revisionist history of the Cotton Bowl in 2018 with Clemson. I, th- I think these are two different stories that fit together um, in terms of how Notre Dame is, where Notre Dame sits relative to the other teams at the top. Um, Clemson, for, to refresh people's memory, if Dexter Lawrence had played, there would have been six first round picks on that defense in addition to a third round, a fourth round, another fourth round um, pick from that group where you had, I think at the time, Clemson's safeties were seen as the weakness of that defense, and Tanner Muse, um, I can't, I can't, I'm blanking on the uh, the other safety that they had drafted, were both drafted higher than Alohi Gilman and Jalen Elliott, which were seen as a strength of Notre Dame's defense. Um, what I, I guess, what did the draft tell you about Notre Dame as it relates to the college football playoff and competing within it? Avon Wallace was a Leo safety fourth right. round pick uh, who went to the Eagles. Uh, I think, you know, I, we were texting, I was texting with our boss, Stu Mandel, throughout the draft, and he had said, remember when Brian Kelly was very adamant after that Cotton Bowl loss that, hey, we just played a bad game, the gap between us is, and Clemson isn't that far? I, I got to disagree with you on that one, Brian Kelly. I mean, I, I think the proof is in the pudding uh, as far as not just how many players are getting drafted out of each program, but how high – uh, those players are getting drafted and how many different positions are coming from. Whereas with Notre Dame, they've had three top 10 picks under Brian Kelly. All of them have been offensive linemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I crunched a bunch of numbers when the draft was done to, to, to kind of compare Notre Dame to the elite of the elite. And, and if we're talking first round picks since 2011, which would have been the first draft since Brian Kelly coached a season at Notre Dame, Alabama 30, Ohio state 18, LSU 15, Clemson 12, Notre Dame nine. Uh, now we, we, Further that into top 10 draft picks since 2011, Alabama 10, Ohio State 8, LSU 7, Clemson only 4, excuse me, 5, uh, Notre Dame 3. But again, at Notre Dame, we're talking about three offensive linemen, which is great, but Alabama's had top 10 picks at every single position other than linebacker uh, under Nick Saban. In most cases, multiple top 10 picks there. Uh, Clemson has had two receivers, two D linemen, a linebacker. They're going to have a number one quarterback probably next year, barring anything I've ever seen. Maybe even uh, a running back, probably not a top 10 guy because running backs don't go in the top 10 anymore, but potentially a first rounder in Travis Etienne, uh, maybe even Justin Ross as well. Um, I think 
we've talked about it at length in season, and I think the draft further emphasized just how much Notre Dame is lacking, really from the skill position standpoint, to be able to compete at a national championship level year in and year out. Yeah, it's, I don't disagree with that. Um, I think in some ways Brian Kelly was still right, but it said more about how far they were from Alabama uh, in 2012. I mean, it, I go back to the oral history that I did uh, in 2018 where I talked to about sort of what it was like to be number one at the time and you know preparing for Alabama and what that whole situation was like. And Chuck Martin, the former offensive coordinator here, you know, he said, look, we were closer to being three and nine than 13 and oh, um, the most Chuck Martin quote ever. It really was. Uh, honesty. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that, you know, I, I don't want to get into like if Julian love was still in the game and all that. Um, I do think they, it, they still would have lost and they probably wouldn't have scored more than three points, but it probably would have been 17 to three instead of 30 to three. Um, but I, I, there's no argument that like, look, if you're, if you're a team with one first round pick and you're going, it's a team with ultimately that, that squad may produce 10 first round picks um, or at least nine when it's, when it's yeah, all said and done. If you go Lawrence Ross, ETN, yeah. um, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure what the recourse is for Notre Dame at that point, other than to really get on your recruiting horse and figure out how you can, you can not only match Clemson for culture, but also get closer to them for talent. Um, because I mean, ultimately it's like, the teams that win in the playoff and are competitive there are the teams that are ha- are having – I mean, you, when you, you wrote about Ohio State, I think each year for the first five years they've had multiple first-round picks, uh, and this year they had two number two and number three overall. It's, I mean, Clemson is coming back on the schedule this fall, and then regularly Ohio State comes on the schedule uh, after that. I mean, Notre Dame has two seasons where they play both. Um that's a that's a really tough ask uh, when you're at a ta- the talent disadvantage that um, the NFL draft seems to indicate that you are at. Yeah, yeah not, not only this year with two top three picks. Ohio State had two players drafted in the top five twice in the past five years. I mean, no one even has two top five picks in one draft during that time period. Um, and they've had a defensive player picked in the top five of three straight drafts, which is p- part of the reason why I wrote, you know, for lack of a better term, I think Urban Meyer did kind of underachieve at Ohio State when you look at the talent that he amassed relative I feel like you're throwing ago. like a red meat to the lions of our listeners right now when you say Urban well, Meyer underachieved. <laughs> yeah, you say that, but you know what? It could be the opposite, right? Because everyone wants to hire Urban Meyer the minute yeah. Notre Dame loses the game. Um, I got to say, I wrote that and I kind of ducked for cover thinking like I'm going to get roasted here. 90% of the Ohio State fans I heard from, and it's a lot. I mean, that story's close in on 200 comments and a lot of action on Twitter. They almost all agree. And they almost really? all blame his loyalty to assistants uh, who are underperforming and really to JT Barrett. Because when you look at it, uh, Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrows sat behind JT Barrett. And I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but I'll give our colleague Ollie Rossman credit. I mean, I linked to a story he wrote after Ohio State got blown out by Iowa in 2017. And he said, now's the time you need to get reps in for Burrow and have because it's going to be an epic quarterback battle when JT Barrett is gone and you might as well get a head start. And uh, obviously things didn't exactly play out that way, but that was a pretty prescient uh, observation from Ari. Uh, to your point about how much of a, a power concentration there is at the top, Chris Felica from, from ESPN, the bear tweeted this out of the first 16 picks in the draft Thursday night, eight of them came from Alabama, Clemson, or Ohio state. I mean, that's just insane. And, and I say it's insane. It's probably similar for recruiting rankings when you look at where the top 60 yep. players are going every year. But it, it's just crazy to think about 
um, how similar, I guess you will, that that, that the, the the biggest prospects of the country, how, how much they're all going to the same places. And uh, you've said this before, for Notre Dame to crack that tier, it means someone has to fall from that tier, and that's not an easy thing to do. That said, when you're making the playoff or competing for the playoff every year, the way Notre Dame has the past three years, or at least being in that double-digit win, one win away conversation, um, and you have a head coach in Brian Kelly who, whether he regrets it or not, came out publicly and said, I think we can be recruiting more. Uh, that tells me you can reach that level. It's just going to take a lot, a lot of work. Um, but but uh, I think you need to aim for that. Yeah, well, maybe this is just semantics, but I don't I don't think Notre Dame should view this as, and I know he said top five, but like, and logically, if you're going to be in the top five, you have to, you have to knock somebody out. LSU didn't knock anybody out of the top five. They just made, joined it and made it a top six. I think that, you know, that's sort of, I think, the the path that Notre Dame could actually walk. Um, you know, Oklahoma is there as well with, you know, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama. Um, yeah, I, I don't think Oklahoma, though, is, is producing the outside of quarterback, which yeah. obviously is a big one. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, that's I was, their first was, defensive first-round pick in a long time. Yeah, it was, it was bizarre to me that it had been – I shoot. I think it was since Gerald McCoy was their last first-round pick on defense. Sounds about right. Which is insane because I remember him taking, I think, an official visit to Notre Dame when Charlie Weiss was the head coach. Um, You know, it'd been it'd been a solid (laughs) decade. Two Charlie Weiss mentions. Yeah, I know. I think that was going to happen. No, they didn't see that coming at all. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure where where Notre Dame goes with that. I mean, it's why. There's a, a running back, Will Shipley, who if you're on the internet and follow Notre Dame football, you know quite a bit about him. Where, where else would he have to be right now? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, he's a basically a four or five, four or five-star level running back who's down to Notre Dame and Clemson privately, even if publicly he's talking about some other schools. I mean, that, that's the kind of recruitment you have to be willing to engage in if you're Notre Dame. Get your heart broken if it comes to that. But then you got to win a bunch of them too because, I mean, I think you look at you know Notre Dame's draft positions right now, I thought they, they overall, they had a good draft. You know, a couple second-round picks, that's solid. Um, I think it's three straight years with six picks or more, which is the first time since 1997. Like, is that going to blow you away and mean that you're you're on the cusp of a championship? Probably not, but it's a good, healthy place to be when you're winning 10 games. But, I mean, you look at next year's draft, I'm not sure I see, I don't, I don't see who that first-round pick would be on, on next year's roster. Um, you know, Kyle Hamilton is still two years away, whereas you look at Clemson and say, you know, Dane Brugler has Trevor Lawrence number one overall, Justin Ross, I think, top 10, uh, and Travis Etienne at the back of the, the first round. It's real easy to pick out the first-round picks again on Clemson, and it will be continually for, for Clemson and Ohio State moving forward, which is what Notre Dame is trying to contend with on Saturdays, which is it's just a difficult place to be. I think Michigan fans were talking a lot this week about, hey, we had 10 draft picks. We had as many draft picks this weekend as Ohio State did. We're really underachieving. And, look, I think as a program, yeah, they probably are underachieving. But I think <laughs> and you're the recruiting game a lot more than I am as far as, like, not all four-star prospects are equal. No, like, just like Michigan all draft picks are not equal. Correct. And to that point, I listed all the accolades this Ohio State draft class had at the top. Chris Leak also tweeted this uh, when Cesar Ruiz got drafted. This, can you believe this? You, you mentioned the Oklahoma stat earlier. I think this one's a little more shocking. This was the first time Michigan had 
back-to-back first-round draft picks since 2007 and 2008. I mean, that is insane. That's about the same uh, distance between here and Gerald McCoy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just insane. Yeah, That's how many coaches ago. I mean, that was Lloyd Carr, 07. I mean, I mean, it, it, it begs an interesting question because I think you can get into some weird stats with Texas and their sort of ineptitude mm-hmm. with the NFL draft recently too. So it's like you're talking about Michigan, uh, Texas in that way. Uh, Oklahoma, I guess, just on defense. But, I mean, if you're Notre Dame I, or a Notre Dame fan, I do think you have to look at that and respect the job that Notre Dame has done to make first-round picks be regular. If Chase Claypool had gone in the first round, he would have been the 10th first-round pick of the Kelly era. And I want to say, I mean, Weiss had Brady Quinn. I believe that was it. Um, I don't think I, – I believe in the previous decade they either had two or three. Um, so it's, it's at least more regular and certainly like Jalen Smith obviously would have gone in the first round, uh, if he hadn't been hurt in the Fiesta Bowl. So it's, I I think there's a good path for like player development here. I think the missing piece from, or the piece that can be enhanced the most is the, what you're developing. I think Notre Dame does a good job with the development, but if your input is greater then your output's going to be greater. Um, and that's, that's the trick for Notre Dame, and that 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 involves beating, you know, Clemson, Ohio State, um, maybe less so Alabama and LSU, but Clemson, Ohio State, those are schools that you're going to have to go out and just out recruit. Um, and if they can do that, then I think ultimately you're going to see Notre Dame with maybe not three first round picks annually, but at least one every year, and sometimes maybe you have two or three. Um, you know, we're getting into like a, and that's when you're having seasons like 2015. Where you got the Will Fuller, Ronnie Stanley, Deshaun Kaiser, CJ Prosize group, where you're getting a lot of day one and day two picks, and that that that's how great teams are built. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I don't think they're lacking the coaching department or the player development department. I think they're doing probably as well as anyone when you look at maximizing the talent that's on your roster and, and getting them NFL ready year in and year out. I mean, Tyler Eifert, Zach Martin, Will Fuller, these were not. I mean, some of them were bigger recruits than others, but they weren't these can't-miss five-star prospects that everyone pegged as day-one draft picks. And those were all first-round picks. Even Harrison Smith, first-round pick, who's had a very lengthy and great NFL career, completely misused by the previous staff, even though they recruited him. So I I think that the coaching and development job is not the problem. I think the the missing link that that you alluded to earlier is uh, swimming in the deeper end of the pool, if you will, when it comes to getting these guys out of high school who are – more of sure things, if you will. And more than that, getting them at the positions where Notre Dame is really locked. Uh, Michael Floyd and Will Fuller are the only receiver first-round picks uh, of the Kelly era, uh, and only one of those are guys that he recruited. No running backs, no quarterbacks, uh, just one tight end, although I wouldn't criticize their tight end. No, at all uh, no. That's been as good as every, anyone <laughs> over the years. Um, but, but I think skilled position players, I mean, the Georgia game in particular, we saw where it just felt like they had to fight and scratch and claw for, for every single inch, and they damn near pulled off the upset. I give them credit for doing that, or almost doing that, but um, I still think they're they're a, a sizable step away from being on equal footing with, with, with the best of the best in the country. Yeah, I mean, the Georgia game is a great example, because like Tony Jones versus DeAndre Swift, you know, undrafted free agent versus a second-round pick, a high second-round pick, um, you know, a borderline first-round pick. And, like, Notre Dame needs to get to a point where their, their lead – their number one running back should always be a day two pick at worst. Uh, and it's been a long time 
Dexter Williams, sixth round pick. Josh Adams um, was undrafted. CJ ProSize went in the third round. That he's sort of the exception to that group right now. Um, it, it took them four years to, to find him. Right. A, a I mean, he was a DB, <laughs> and then he was a receiver, and then he was a running back. Uh, and you know, who knows what his season would have been like if Torian Folson doesn't uh, tear his ACL right. against Texas in the in the opener. So. That's that needs to be more of a regular thing. I'm completely on board with you. Like Notre Dame needs to expand beyond off, offensive line and tight end. You, um, they do a hell of a job on the input and the output at those positions uh, with the development in between. Uh, but the, at the skill positions, it's it's been much more touch and go. And I, I think ultimately, if, if if the question is okay, how does Notre Dame get there fastest? It's figuring out. How do you get the quarterback there fastest? Because um, that that can make up for hey your receivers were just okay or hey maybe you're weak at cornerback. Um, but if you have a game changing quarterback, then then a lot a lot can change around you. Quarterback and defensive line and quarterback obviously easier because it's one guy. But but defensive line, I think when you look at the great teams of this era, they've all had guys who you just couldn't even breathe against if you were an offense. And they're uh, expect good in that department they they had some more guys get picked this week but jerry tillery last year was actually the first first rounder they've had uh up in the brian kelly era, which is a little surprising especially when you look at some of those earlier teams the 2012 team in particular which had a really dominant defensive line but yeah i think those are the two biggest bugaboos if you will quarterback more so because that's more the ball's in his hands he, he can affect the game more and it, it, getting one's a lot easier than getting three or four nfl caliber pass rushers you know what's, a, what's odd about that, that is like I think Notre Dame has solved the defensive line conundrum faster than the quarterback spot. So it's it, in some ways, even though it would seem harder to recruit three or four of those guys, I think they've done actually a really good job of that. Whether it be Tuit, Knicks, you know, Aaron Lynch briefly, uh, then you get in Julio Quara, Khalid Kareem, Jerry Tillery, um, Sheldon, Sheldon Day, Sheldon Day's in there, and I think they have Mike Elston has built built a really nice sense of depth there, where uh, you know. Privately, Adeogandeje was really one of those high developmental guys where he was a, a low three-star prospect. At one point, he's committed to Western Michigan, and now the coaching staff thinks he's just going to be outstanding uh, and is you know, probably going to be an NFL guy. Um, I, I think they have some freshmen coming in that have a chance to be NFL people down the road. So it's, I don't know, it's there's an interesting dynamic there. It's you know whether it's Ian Book or Brendan Clark or Drew Prine, but you know probably Tyler Buckner is the Help us, Obi Wan Kenobi, your only hope uh, recruiting prospect at quarterback. Um, that's where I, I think they they have the most upward mobility. As much as you know, Justin Ross would really help. I think you know you can find a Chase Claypool, Miles Boykin, Kevin Austin, Braden Lindsey, uh, Jordan Johnson types. But getting the Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, Joe Burrow at quarterback has even been a little bit more tricky. But um, that's. That's the challenge for Notre Dame football. That's what that's what Brian Kelly and his staff have signed up for. It's interesting because I haven't looked at like this last decade of Notre Dame football under Brian Kelly as some giant shortcoming at quarterback. I mean, I think Ian Book's a really good college quarterback. I think uh, you know, I think we may have, FS1 was airing the Stanford Notre Dame game last night that I had some Twitter commentary about, and watching that last drive with first year starting quarterback Deshaun Kaiser, who was a third stringer that spring. Uh, March Notre Dame offense down the field with the season on the line. I mean, uh, there was something almost comforting, if you will, knowing that this kid's really sharp. He's really good. He's not going to make a mistake. And at the end of the day, he, he damn near won them the game. He did everything he could to win them the game. I, I, I don't think Notre Dame's lacking in that department, but I think getting on a stage with a Trevor Lawrence or a Joe Burrow, 
illustrates just how much of a difference that like 1% more, if you will, can make because that's the difference between an NFL player, a guy who's probably going to have a long career as an NFL backup, maybe even a spot starter versus a top 10 draft pick who uh, is going to be a a franchise changing guy. And and not just for the NFL team that he goes to, but for the college team that he's at for three years. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, it's I'm not sure when our next podcast will be probably two weeks from now. I don't know if we'll find another hall of fame guest either, but uh, it, uh, I thought today's podcast was one of my favorite ones. So this is like back to back Rinaldi and Muffin McGraw. Good luck! Good luck to our next guest. Uh, the, the, someone asked me about how we got Rinaldi. I said it's not a big secret. Everyone is at home right now. Okay, yeah. like a lot of people have a lot of time on their hands uh, in front of their computers. So it's a little bit easier now than it is in the middle of the season. I don't think we're going to be getting Brian Killery and booked every week whenever the games resume. But uh, we'll, we'll try our best. And if you guys have any suggestions, please by all means. Uh, let us know. This has been fun. It's been, you know, not ideal without spring football or without much X's and O's to talk about. But but it's been fun getting to to speak about football and Notre Dame related matters in a much more different, bigger picture kind of uh, 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 format. So if you have any suggestions, by all means, uh, throw them our way. We'd love to, to try to make that happen. Maybe we can get Clark Lee, but that podcast would definitely go more than an hour. I have no problem with that. And we could we could absolutely call it Domes on Domers if we get. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. All right, Matt, uh, this is another op- awesome episode. Thanks for everybody listening to the Shamrock. Uh, we'll be back in the next couple of weeks efforting for our next guest. Again, take Matt's advice. If you have suggestions, you can tweet at us, email us, uh, whatever your preferred method of contact with uh, the Shamrock is. Uh, so until next time, thanks for listening.